So uh, this last five or six weeks, we've been, over the, uh, been going over the Gospel of John. We'll be in the Gospel of John through the fall, uh, through the summer and the fall, um, as we've been going story by story, verse by, verse, by verse through the Gospel. Um, I think that was, that was Jesus calling you. So if he is calling you, just turn it on mute. You can respond by text. Um, and I'm going to skip our introduction this morning just to, just to um, save some time. So on, at, at 8.37 p.m. on July 13th, 1977, lightning struck a power substation just outside of New York City in Brooklyn. Um, at the exact same time, there were some mechanical failures that happened at that substation and at the next substation. And so partial, there was a partial temporary loss of power in New York. At 8.55 p.m. and then at 9.14 p.m., two more massive lightning strikes hit the next two subsequent power stations in New York City. And it knocked out power for the entire city for two full days. At that time, there was 8 million people living without power in the middle of July for two days. But just so happened that on that night, there was a little boy who lived in Queens, and his parents had caught him lying. And he was very mad. He did not like to be, to be called out, so to speak. And so he went outside, and he kicked the light pole. It just so happens that he kicked the light pole at 9.14 p.m. when the third lightning bolt struck the substation. And when he kicked the light pole, all power went out across New York City. And he thought that he was responsible for knocking out the power of New York City for two whole full days. He was totally and completely inconsolable because he felt the weight of condemnation on his shoulders. To be condemned, according to the uh, Webster's Dictionary, means this. To, for someone to express complete disapproval of you, typically in public, that they would censure you, silence you. The second definition would be to sentence someone to a particular punishment, especially death. And this little boy felt the weight of condemnation on his shoulders as looting and rioting and arson broke out across the city, he just felt like it was all his fault. And there was nothing his parents could say to help him until the lights went back on. Today's passage is a story about condemnation, but more so it's a story that illustrates both in John chapter 7 and in 8, where we'll be today. Next week we'll go backwards to 7. But both chapters illustrate that Jesus is our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who not only lifts the weight of condemnation and guilt off of our shoulders, but also then gives us exactly what we need to live in freedom and hope and peace. So will you pray with me? And then we're going to read to, uh, today. We'll be in John chapter 8. Will you pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these amazing people. I thank you for your presence and your glory in this place. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your protection we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place. We bind up in silence everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to distract us from you, Lord Jesus, that would put us to sleep, that would have us be thinking about something else. Father, this is your time. We give you full permission to speak to our spirit, 
to separate everything from us that would be dragging us down, weighing us down. Lord, set us free this morning. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's beloved saints said, Let's read together John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. And he sat down to teach. So last week we talked John chapter 6 about Jesus turning or multiplying the bread and how Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter 7 is the story of how Jesus goes back to Jerusalem in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. We'll go over that last week where he claims that not only is the bread of life, but he's the living water. And so at, at the dawn the next day, Jesus has been camping in his favorite camping spot, which is an olive orchard just east of, of the Jerusalem. And he leaves the Mount of Olives. He crosses west down the Valley of Kidron, where there's a bunch of graves. He goes up the hillside and enters into Jerusalem proper, where he shows up to the temple courts. And at dawn, he is at the temple courts. So put yourself there. You know what dawn feels like. It's quiet. The air is still. The light is absolutely gorgeous. And when Jesus shows up, he finds that other people are there with him. And it's just this beautiful, intimate, quiet moment. And he sits down with them, the God of the universe, to teach these people about what his heavenly father is like and what he's like to show God. Thank you, Barbara. To show them what God is like. It's this amazing, precious, incredible moment. It's a Bible study I want to go to. Amen? Can't, can, can you not wait to heaven? We'll go to the Bible study and we'll be with the Word, Jesus himself. It's going to be sweet. Let's read together. It's this amazing Bible study. It's the best Bible study you've ever been to in your entire life. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, that's the local pastors and, and theological leaders, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Again, put yourself in the passage. It's so important when you read this. You're it's this gorgeous, incredible moment. It's quiet. You're having this amazing Bible study with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, there's this commotion. There's this noise. And this poor lady is being dragged. I don't know if she's wrapping the sheet around her or what, how clothed she is. But she's being dragged. She's protesting. She's screaming. She's pleading. She's begging. And you see your two pastors dragging this woman into church. Now, Paul and I would never do that, but I want, that's how shocking it is. And you're with Jesus hanging out, doing the Bible study thing, but then he, he actually, they actually, whore beyond whores, they're walking towards you. That would be a distracting moment, wouldn't it? You guys are really funny. Sometimes it's being up here, it's like, have you ever watched the crowd in a tennis match? <laughs> Ready? Follow my hand, right? I mean, it's just like... You know, Barbara gets up to give me a glass of water, and everybody's eyes immediately are on Barbara's. 
And it's so funny. And then every, Barbara walks and everybody's watching Barbara and then everybody's heads come back here. And that's what it would be like, right? Jesus is in the Bible study and Jesus is like God himself, but they're not paying attention to Jesus. Now their eyes are on this woman and this woman and these pastors, they come and stand before Jesus. And basically the pastors say, this woman was caught right in the middle of an act of adultery, right in the middle. Should we just stone her as the law says? And of course, she's looking down at the ground and you're looking at her and you're looking at these pastors and you're looking at Jesus and you're wondering what to do. Now, you know, as a good Jew, what the law says. Deuteronomy 22 verses 22 through 24 states that if two people are caught in the act of adultery, that both parties would be brought and would be stoned because sin is death and sin causes death. We don't agree with that today. Thank God we don't live according to the law but we live in a time of grace. But that's what the law says. So at first, you wouldn't have much compassion on this woman. You would say, okay, well, so obviously she deserves what she's going to get. But then you think, well, where's the guy? Wait a minute. Where's the guy? Because you're looking for two parties. And one man would be thinking, well, maybe it's one of the pastors. <laughs> that, you know, uh, he's, they're all dressed. So what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, it kind of dawns on you that, that, that these pastors aren't just bringing this lady in and the guy in for justice. They're actually trying to use this woman. She's already been used that day, and now they're using her. And so you start to have compassion for her. Now, John, the author of the gospel, will then explain this. Verse 6, read with me. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. It's a brilliant ploy. Someone asks you a question that can't be answered instead of answering that question, like, aren't you a little bit short to be an imperial stormtrooper? <laughs> right? There's no, someone asks me, have you stopped hitting your wife yet? I mean, like, there's no answer to that question, right? So what you say is nothing. So Jesus bends down and he, he writes in the dust with his finger. These politicians, these rabbis, these Pharisees, what they're trying to do is they're trying to pin on Jesus a label that he is he's just like a politician. He just wants to be popular. He's going to flip-flop on any issue. He's going to break the law. And once they've identified a rabbi who will break the law, then they can say, see, this rabbi's full of, full of malarkey. Don't follow him. So Jesus does something absolutely incredible. Verse 7, read with me. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So what we're going to do is we're going to snap four times in the letter Z. Ready? <laughs> Come on, baby. That is good. That's absolutely brilliant. I don't think Jesus went, well, if anyone hasn't sinned, let them throw the first stone. But that's how I imagine it. Because Jesus is just like, oh my gosh, he's totally flipped the tables here they are, all wanting to be the judge, all wanting to condemn. And Jesus says, oh, you want to be the judge? Okay, great. You go ahead and be the judge. 
and let's make sure that you're perfect because you're next in line after her if you're not. Verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What the heck is, what is he writing? What is going on? I love this. Verse 9. At this, read with me, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Picture it. Picture it. One at a time. The older ones first, a.k.a. the smarter ones, <laughs> until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, Jesus' argument about throwing the first stone is a blow from which none of them can logically recover. But I think they started to figure out what Jesus was writing in the dust. There's only one verse in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible in which we find anyone writing in the dust, and it's God himself who writes in the dust. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 13. Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. Read this with me. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now Jesus in chapter 7 just got done saying, I'm the living water. But more importantly, it wasn't the woman caught in the act of adultery who's, who's being written in the dust. The Pharisees, see, after a while, they started paying attention to what Jesus was writing in the dust. What was he writing in the dust? Their names. He was writing the Pharisees' names in the dust. The older ones knew the scripture. The younger ones figured it out. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, this is the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 2 when he talks to his mom, the wedding of Cana. It means sweetheart. He says, Sweetheart, where are they? Has no one condemned you? This is such a tender moment. And everybody in the Bible study is looking at this woman. And they're looking at Jesus, speaking to her, looking to her face to face, giving her the honor and the respect that she is due for being a human being, for being a daughter created in the image of God. And he looks at her and he says, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And I don't know if she knows that the only one who actually has the power to condemn is standing right in front of her. You remember John chapter 5, Jesus says that the Lord has handed over all judgment to me. So Jesus is the judge. And Jesus does have the power to condemn her. And what does Jesus say? Read with me. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Read it again. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So we're going to camp out here just for a couple of minutes. And, and, but first I want to talk about what Jesus is not saying before 
I talk about what Jesus is saying. Actually, I was wrong. I just read what I actually wrote in my sermon. First, I'm going to say what Jesus means by I no longer condemn you. Then we'll talk about what Jesus doesn't mean. I'm just going to keep on talking and you'll listen, okay? <laughs> Here we go. It's the medication. <laughs> I, don't, I no longer condemn you. That's what Jesus is saying. I no longer condemn you. I do not condemn you. Now, as readers on this side of the history of the cross, we fully understand what Jesus is saying. Amen? This woman experienced incredible compassion from Jesus, but she has no idea that she's talking to God in the flesh. So how can Jesus say that she's not condemned after she's been caught legitimately in the middle of sin? Well, it's because the it's what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross for her, on the cross for you. Jesus is going to become sin for her and for you. On the cross, as an innocent man, he becomes our substitute so that the condemnation you deserve lands on his shoulders. And it's paid for. He's paying for my condemnation when he dies for me on the cross. And so when he dies, my debt is paid in full. We have this law in our court system. It's called double jeopardy. Does anybody know what that means? There was a, uh, an okay movie with Ashley Judd about how she gets away with murder. Um, but the idea is this, double jeopardy is this law. You cannot be tried and convicted and sentenced for the same crime twice. Why? It's because when you've been tried and convicted of a crime and you've paid its penalty, the condemnation that you deserve has now been destroyed. Once the debt is paid, the condemnation no longer exists. Does that make sense? You picking up what I'm putting down? So when Jesus, the creator of the universe, covered himself in my filth and in my shame on the cross so that the voice of condemnation would die at the exact same moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, now condemnation is destroyed. I am no longer condemned. Amen? There is no more condemnation for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Now pay attention to the second sentence. Jesus says, read it with me. Go now and leave your life of sin. Hmm, that's a little bit tougher. So how do we do that? Well, let's, now let's talk about what Jesus isn't saying. So one mistake we fall into is that we assume that Jesus is offering here uh, sort of an, the end of guilt or that we should no longer feel bad when we do something wrong. And this is not what Jesus is saying. There was a guy who walked into a bar, they ordered a beer, the bartender said, sure, no problem, threw the beer across the table to them. The guy looked at the beer, threw it in the bartender's face, and then immediately pulled out his napkin and says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. 
the bartender's like, what in the world? And the guy's cleaning off the bartender's face. He says, I have a problem. I know I have a problem. I'm so sorry. I do this everywhere I go. I'm, ju I'm just so sorry. The bartender says, well, forget it, man. Like, look, if you've got a problem, you go deal with this problem. But get out of here. I, I don't want to see you ever again until you've worked this out. So the guy goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He leaves. He comes back a couple months later, and the bartender's like, you, you, get out right now. Guy says, no, look, I've been a counseling. I got it cured. I'm doing fine. The bartender goes, like a real counselor? And he's like, yeah, like a real counselor. Like a, you know, like I've, I've been a counseling, man. I'm, it's okay. And so the guy goes, bartender goes, oh, okay. So he pours him a beer, slides it across to him. And the guy takes the beer, throws it in the bartender's face. <gasps> the bartender goes, what are you doing? I thought you were cured. And the guy says, I am cured. I, I keep on doing this, but now I don't have to feel guilty about it. Look, that's not what Jesus is saying, right? The purpose of counseling isn't to cure you of feeling bad when you do bad things. Guilt is actually a, a really important emotion, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. Guilt helps us not become sociopaths, like this made-up character in the bar, right? When we feel guilty for doing something wrong or for hurting someone that we love, that's actually an important thing. If you don't feel guilt, that's a problem. That means that your spirit has been seared, usually by a really tough life or really difficult decisions that you've made. Jesus is not offering you the end of guilt or the freedom from feeling bad when you've behaved badly. So, so what is Jesus saying here? How is it that we go now and live a life free from sin? The Apostle Paul helps us understand in the book of Romans. Read this with me. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And we're going to focus on verse 2. You know why verse 1 is true, correct? It's because of the cross. Now we go on to verse 2, which Paul is actually remembering back to the story, and he's saying, how do you live a life free of sin? It's, it's this, that the law of the spirit of life, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's the law of sin and death. If condemnation exists, condemnation is incredibly painful. It's, public, it's being publicly shamed. Anybody here want to sign up for that? It's being sentenced publicly, maybe even to death. Does that sound like fun to anybody? No, we want to avoid that at all costs. Even if it's just one-on-one -on -one with our spouse, we'll lie to avoid them finding out what we've done. Your kids do it. Your grandkids do it. Do it at times. So what is that about? Well, what ends up happening when we believe that there's still condemnation is that we do two things simultaneously. Number one, we try and be perfect. How does that work out? But we try, don't we? And at the exact same time, we also refuse to speak about our own failures. Why? Because if condemnation exists, we want to pretend and work really hard that we have our lives together. And at the exact same time, we want to not admit at all that we have any problems. It's like when politicians give apologies, you know, 
I wasn't wrong, but now I realize that what I did could be understood as, as uh, m- misspeaking the truth. But I didn't lie, right? It's like saying it's, it's not an apology. It's not actually admitting that you've done something wrong because your job is to be perfect and also to avoid saying that you have a problem because if you do either, if you fail at being perfect or if you admit that you actually have a problem, then you will receive condemnation. That's the law of sin and death. What has Jesus done? Jesus has set you free from condemnation. It no longer exists. So you know what that means? It means this, that you and I now have the freedom to admit when we are wrong. You and I have the freedom as Christians to say, I'm not perfect. I don't have my life together. And what's beautiful about that is that you'll actually get then the opportunity to deal with the things that are causing you pain. If you pretend that you don't have any problems, you'll never actually deal with the problems that you have. Amen? Look to your neighbor and say, stop pretending you don't have any problems. (laughs) This is going to be an awesome time for spouses after, uh, after the service, right? Can we talk about what happened at church? No, we can't. Absolutely not. <laughs> Stop pretending that you don't have problems. Talk about your problems. Talk about your issues. Because since there is no longer any condemnation, since Jesus has taken all of the condemnation that you and I deserve on his shoulders, now I have the permission to be honest and vulnerable and actually deal with what's going on in my life. And I don't have to use condemnation on someone else. And I don't have to use condemnation on my own heart. I can live in the freedom of the gospel. I'll never forget. I was a hospital chaplain in Philadelphia. I told you that I was a hospital chaplain last week. I have a whole, I have a lot of good stories. I recently found my journal from that time. And boy, what a treasure trove. And I'll never forget these two brothers. They, they, they were just a, a perfect image of what it looked like to live in condemnation. Where you couldn't admit that you had a problem, but if you did have a problem, then you certainly were going to blame it on somebody else. So, oh, one o'clock in the morning, these two guys come in. It's two brothers. They're both handcuffed to the ambulance gurneys because police had been called to their home by their two wives because both of them had matching gunshot wounds in the same arm and in the same foot. And it was my job as the hospital chaplain to sort of ask how this all happened and see if I could be a resource to the family. So brother number one says this to me. Well, my brother had an affair with my wife, and so I shot him in the shoulder. It's reasonable. (laughs) So then the second now wounded brother in revenge shot his brother, the first brother, in the same arm. You're going to shoot me? I'll shoot you right back. So now both brothers have gunshot wounds in the arm. 
Now, the second brother who had betrayed the first brother had his own confession to make. You're going to shoot me? Oh, yeah? Well, I've been having an affair with your wife. So the first now betrayed brother shoots his second brother in the foot, to which the second brother then says, you're going to shoot me in the foot? And shoots his brother in the foot as well. So you can't make this up. Now both brothers are lying on the ground, bleeding, rolling around in agony. They can't walk. And these two women who have decided to uh, create this chaos um, they are, call the cops and let us deal with them. Now, of course, the police are present in any ER anytime that there's a gunshot wound because they need to carry the police report. And so they're there and I'm there. And the police and I are interviewing this guy. And the first brother, who was the one who originally found out that he was betrayed, he felt the most um, hurt. And he grabbed me. And he says, my brother is a drug dealer. And he's got illegal guns. And the second brother, right next to him, and in between, I mean, like, I'm in between these two brothers, and there's a cop right here with his pad out, and the first brother has me, and he's saying, my brother over here has guns and drugs, and the other brother is grabbing at my shirt and going, hey, hey, shut up, man, stop talking, stop talking right now, he's got guns and drugs, man, he's the one, he's like a drug dealer, he's got illegal guns right now, the second brother's like, hey, stop talking, man, you're going to ruin everything, the first brother's like, I can't believe you betrayed me, you slept... I slept with your wife. You, I sleep, you slept with my wife. They're going nuts. The second brother, who's now been outed as a, as a drug dealer, says, Oh, yeah, well, fine. If you're going to out me, I'm going to out you. All the guns and drugs are in your car, which is in the parking lot. Here are the keys. So the police officer takes the keys and all of us in the ER walk out of the ER into the ER drive-in and there is a 1974 Buick LeSabre. We pop this massive trunk which three or four bodies could fit into and there is a load of cocaine and marijuana and a whole lot of illegal guns. Welcome to Philadelphia. Yeah. Why am I telling you this story? <laughs> See, if, if you use the tool of condemnation on your own heart, that tool, you're going to use it on other people. You're going to use it on your family. You're going to use it on your friends. Whatever tool you use on your own heart, it will come out. Because you'll just be used to grabbing that tool from your tool belt when you're dealing with failure or problems. What the gospel says is this, you are free from condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you don't have to condemn yourself or anybody else. Because your Savior, your Redeemer, has silenced all condemnation by dying in your place. And so you get to live a life of honesty. A life of vulnerability. A life where you admit what's going on with the safe people in your life so that you can be free from that. And when you do that, you will discover that your appetite changes. 
you will start seeing the things that make you sick to your stomach and you will become allergic to them. And the appetite that you have for Jesus will grow because he's bringing life to you and hope to you. So your job is to preach the gospel to your heart every day. And here it is. Can we read it together? Can we preach it to our own hearts? This is what you would say to your spouse, your friends, your kids, your grandkids. This is what you say to yourself when you've messed up or when you're doing great. Read this with me. My heavenly father chooses me and adopted me because he loves me. Jesus died for me on the cross, forgiving me all of my sin and giving to me a worth I could never earn. I'm free from condemnation. I have the Holy Spirit within me, and the Holy Spirit has given me a brand new heart with a new appetite for God's kingdom and God's will. One more slide, John. I choose to set my mind on Jesus and the power of his cross. Jesus forgives me and loves me even when I mess up. And when I do fail, I'm reminded once again of the staggering breadth and depth of his love for me. There is now no more condemnation, only love. Let's pray.